This past Thanksgiving was the celebration of turkey and eating too much and falling asleep and things like that. It was also the 150th anniversary of Alice in Wonderland. Um, written by a man that was a mathematician. In fact, he published more books on math than he did literature. Um, up until the end of the 20th century, there were still people studying his theorems and things that he was writing as a mathematician. Um, he was also an Anglican and, and, a, and a strong believer. But what he's most known for is Alice. This book that, so just, I want to see a show of hands. Not the movie, not the children's version. How many of you have actually read the book? Raise your hand. Okay, just, just a handful. Um, it's like a fever dream. I mean, it is crazy. Um, here is, I'm, I'm just read something because this kind of summarizes the book. In that direction, the cat said, waving its right paw around, lives a hatter. And in that direction, waving the other paw, lives a March hare. Visit either you like. They're both mad. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad, you're mad. How do, I, how do you know I'm mad? You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. The entire book is mad. Um, going down that rabbit hole, it is just crazy. Um, it is out of control. It is nonsensical at times. It is, um, here is one of the, the, the parts of it that I think encapsulates um, the book is Alice finds herself in a hallway and there's all these doors, but all the doors are locked. And so she looks for a key and she finally finds a key, but it doesn't fit any of the doors. Then she finally finds a door that the key fits into, but she's too big to go through the door. So then she finds a bottle that shrinks her to go through the door, but then she's too small to pick up the key. Does that ever sound like your life? Do you ever feel like that? Like one thing after another just keeps going wrong, and even when something goes right, something else goes wrong to make what went right not as right as it should have been? Do you ever feel like that? When I read this book, I feel like at times it's kind of my life. Um, and I don't mean the talking animals. Um, I don't mean like, you know, she cries so much she creates a pool and like there's all these animals swimming in it. And I, I don't mean that. Uh, but it's, the, it's the, the themes going through it. It's the symbols. It's this sense of like, it doesn't always make sense. Things don't work like I think they should work. That's the part that I relate to. And as we start Advent, I want to be really transparent. I feel as if the world doesn't work right. However, that actually sometimes impacts my faith. Here is my transparency. I am 
a pastor. Um, I have been ordained in two different traditions. Um, I've been in ministry for almost 20 years. I still have issues with doubt sometimes. There are things in this messed up world that when my faith interacts with them, I have some questions. Really two big things, and I wanna address them both this morning. Here's the first. I sometimes want God to be more tangible. I want him to be more present. I, I, really what I want is when I'm going through one of these moments where it doesn't make sense, it's nonsensical, I'm struggling, um, I'm frustrated, I'm hurt. I just want God to walk into my living room and sit down on my couch with me. I just want to know. I, I want to know he's real. I, wanna, I want him to touch me and talk to me and say, I get what you're going through, but I'm here. I, I just I want it to be more real sometimes. Have you ever felt that? Because, I mean, here's what my times are when I go through that. I just a percentage. 80% of the time, 75% of the time. I know he's there. Sometimes I can read his word and, like, I just, I know it. Um, I can have a friend come to me and lay a hand on my shoulder or give me a hug or say the right words, and I know it's there. But there's this other part where it's just like, I want more. I need more. Show me something that, is, that, that I can lay my hands on. Have you been there? That's one of my struggles. And our text addresses it. Open your Bible to Luke 21. Luke chapter 21. This sermon series actually works backwards. Okay, we're following the lectionary. Uh, the lectionary is a set of readings in a three-year rotation, and we're just following them. But it starts backwards. It starts with the second coming, and it moves to the birth on Christmas Eve. So we're starting with the second coming today. Luke 21 and verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. What I am looking for will take place in the second coming. See, the second coming, let's go to the first for a moment. The first coming, a poor virgin gives birth to a child in a cave. And some angels come to a couple of shepherds, and they go and they honor the birth. And that's it. Now, a couple years later, some wise men from the east will come. But basically, for 30 years, he'll live in obscurity. 
and then he'll die alone on a cross. That's not the second coming. The second coming, creation itself will testify that he is about to come. In the heavens and on the earth. And it will be so dramatic that people will be perplexed. They will be, it's a word that means kind of trapped and fearful. Like, what do we do? What is happening? It will be so big that everybody will be asking, what is going on? What is, uh, how do we get escape this? And then he will come in great power and glory. This will not be a backwater cave with a couple of shepherds. This will be the Son of God in all of his power coming on the clouds for the world to see. That tangibleness that I want, no one will be able to deny it at that point. As creation moves toward that moment and announces his coming, and then the Son of Man shows up. That will be tangible. Now, how does that help me right now? Helps me a little bit. When I believe, when I have the faith, when I know it's coming, it gives me some courage. However, it also gives us a hint that biblically speaking, we need to follow up on. There is some tangibleness. It's not as much as we want. You are unlikely, and I say unlikely because it's not impossible. You are unlikely to have Jesus show up in your living room. You might. There are people that have. There are very, very powerful visions like the Apostle Paul had, and some people are blessed with those. But most of us, we're probably a little bit more like Thomas. Like, I want to I touch him before I believe. However, there is a hint in this second coming as the creation announces it. I want to read you something out of Romans. This is Romans chapter 1. God is spirit, and so we cannot see him. We cannot touch him. Um, That is why faith is necessary, at least right now. However, God did not leave us. We don't have a blind or stupid faith. God did not leave us without evidence. Just like in the second coming, creation speaks. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Creation is tangible evidence of the truth of God. According to the word, and let me just ask you, have you ever seen something so amazing in nature that you went, wow? That's this. But it goes more than that. 
I want to I share with you the power of the creation. I'm going to introduce you to a person. Some of you will recognize the name. Some of you will not. Anthony Flew. I'm going to read you a little about him. This is a quote. Within the last hundred years, no mainstream philosopher has developed the kind of systematic, comprehensive, original, and influential exposition of atheism that is to be found in Antony Flew's 50 years of anti-theological writings. He is considered the most influential atheist of the 20th century. He is also one of the most influential, influential philosophers in general in the 20th century. His essay, Theology and Falsification, written in the 50s, it is the most reprinted philosophical writing ever. I mean, this guy is high up there. In 2004, he became a believer in God and rocked atheism. Now, not a believer in Christ, right? a believer in God. And, and it was so bad, so dramatic, that there were people writing that, like, he had lost his mind because he was getting old, that people were manipulating him. There's no way this could have happened. And he responded to all of it. Here is his first rationale for believing in God. What I think the DNA material has done is that, is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. Science, creation, that is what converted him to, he called himself a deist, to a deist. Because creation is that powerful. I was once in a room, and it was just such irony. I was in a room back in college where four professors of various disciplines of science, from physics to biology, were speaking about creation. And this is not a religious institution. It was a university that was not religious. It used to be Methodist at one point, not any longer. They are speaking about creation, about the complexity of life. One person in that room challenged these four scientists. Our agnostic chaplain of the school. Now, how weird that is? We're in this room, and here are these four professors, PhDs in various disciplines in science, talking about the complexity of life and the belief in the eternal. And the only person in the room standing up is this chaplain who's saying, now, are you sure that... Sit down, man. Creation is one of the ways in which God has made tangible his existence. First coming, the creation and the second coming, and its impact has been profound in the life of many. There are a few others. I'm gonna hit them very, very quickly. 
You can re-listen to this if you want them. Um, Ephesians chapter one says that God has placed the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us to guarantee our salvation. That, that you have the Spirit living in you. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Here's what it says. There is a, a, a testimony to the existence and realness of God in the people around us, in the way in which God has worked in different lives, in the way in which God uses us to speak to others. In the Psalms, David more than once talks about, I will remember the great works of God. One of the things that helps me in those moments of doubt is remembering the way in which God has worked in my life in the past and holding on to those faithful moments even when I can't see him now. And the last one, we do it every week. Eucharist. In Luke's gospel, at the Last Supper, Jesus says this in Luke 22. He says, I will not drink from the vine until I come again in my kingdom. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Hey, here's what happened. Jesus at the Last Supper received for the last time. And he said, now I want you to receive. And every time you receive, you are proclaiming my death, my resurrection, and my coming again until I come again. And then in the kingdom, we'll do it again. Every time you come forward to receive, it is a remembrance that he's coming back, that he didn't leave us here. He's coming back. Now, that leads me to my second big issue. My first is that when things aren't making sense to me, when I've gone down that rabbit hole and like I just need God to walk in the room, he doesn't do it, and I want him to, and sometimes I struggle with that, there's a second one. I know, as all of you do, that the world is messed up, right? I mean, the 140 plus people that just got killed by a few psychopaths in France, that's awful. The genocides going on, the starving children all over our world, it is messed up. Sometimes, it is too messed up. There are times where I struggle with just how screwed up things are. And going, God, why are you not doing something? I mean, I, I get that there is a certain amount of will and choice that we have. Hey, we are doing, I know the world is fallen and there's sin all over the place, but every once in a while, it feels like it just goes too far. Like, God, you need to step in and stop this. A few years ago, I did a visit to Children's Hospital. Drove in, and one of the things that struck me right off the bat is how full the parking garage was. Just packed. I couldn't even find a spot to park. And then I go into the hospital, everywhere. Sick and dying children. Let me tell you how I view Children's Hospital. It is one of the most beautiful places on the earth and one of the most terrible, awful places on the earth. It is beautiful because everybody there 
is trying to save a child's life. And when we took our daughter through, I mean, everybody, the nurses and the doctors and the, the people, I mean, just, they're all there. They're trying to save children's lives. It is amazing and wonderful. And it is also just awful that they're there. It is amazing that entire parking garage was filled because of so many families that have kids with cancer and leukemia. It's just terrible, awful things. And this is just one of them. There are hundreds all over our country. Sometimes I think it's just too much. How is it that God can even be real or good with all of this evil and awfulness? Look back at your text. Luke 21. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, now I want you to, I'm going to summarize something for you. If you go back to the beginning of this chapter, like we started right in the middle. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus himself will describe terrible atrocities. He will describe wars and betrayal and death. This is not a shock or a surprise. God never once woke up in heaven and went, wow, things have gotten out of control. How did that happen? That has never happened. He said it would happen. So right now when we read in verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, it is all of the awful stuff that finally came to creation testifying and the Lord coming back, which by the way will be pretty scary. Nobody will be able to deny it at that point. But look what he says. When these things take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is his answer to the atrocities of the world. Hey, did you know that you are not fully redeemed? Did you know that? You're fully forgiven. Your eternity is secure in Christ. But look at the world. Look at yourself. When's the last time you got sick? That's sin. When's the last time you did something you shouldn't have done? That's sin. We are not fully redeemed, and neither is the earth. But you know what? God's plan is not just to kind of let it all go and to pull us out of it and then to bring us to some ethereal fairy cloud land where we fly around as spirits and play harps. That's not your eternity. If that's what you wanted, I'm really sorry. And you, man, you're boring, right? God has got a lot more in store. You see, our full redemption is the Lord coming back and remaking all of this and remaking us. Giving us bodies and lives and a world that is not tainted and Affected by sin and death and evil. But instead, it is a place of joy and love and compassion and everything we are looking for. I was gone last week, as some of you might have noticed. We went to Disneyland. 
And my wife and I have not seen Fantasmic for like 10 years. And we were so excited because 10 years ago when we saw it, we loved it. If you've not seen Fantasmic, it's this show that's on the, um, the island and then the lake that's around it at Disneyland. And it involves like they shoot water up and project uh, cartoons on that water. And then Mickey is there and boats come around and it's all integrated. And we were so excited to see it. Now, the only showing that we could get to was 9 p.m., and we really wanted our kids to see it. And so I took the youngest, and she took the four-year-old, and we brought them, and we showed up, and we had to get there at like 7.30 for the 9 o'clock showing. And they herded us into this little tiny area where if you're claustrophobic, you may have lost it. And we had to stay there for like 45 minutes where then they herded us over to another area, and we, like, we were early, so we got to be up right front, here's the kind of fence area and you're looking right here's the lake and then the, the island there and we're waiting and waiting and we're keeping our children awake because it's really past their bedtime especially the youngest that I'm by and I'm like well, stay awake Mickey's coming Mickey's his favorite I mean he, he has Mickey uh, slippers Mickey shirts Mickey pajamas Mickey pillow he loves Mickey and I'm like buddy Mickey is coming I mean you just got to stay awake so try to keep him awake and finally it starts the first problem is that when you're close, there's a little bit of spray, any wind that comes up. And so it's freezing outside, and I'm like, come on, buddy, wait for Mickey, here he comes. And there's this spray coming across. It's like, okay, so I'm trying to cover him up, you know, while he's trying to watch it. It's okay, Mickey's coming, Mickey's coming. There's Mickey! And he shows up, and my son's like all excited because Mickey shows up, and he's dancing, and he's doing his stuff, and he loves it, and, um, but then Mickey goes away. And other things happen. Like a boat comes along, and people are dancing on it, and they're showing this. It's, it's supposed to be Mickey's dream, and I'm pretty sure that Mickey had read Alice in Wonderland before this <laughs> because it is so bizarre. There's all these elephants dancing and doing this weird stuff, and I'm like, I don't know if you should watch this. You're going to have nightmares. But that's happening and other stuff, and, and then he's starting to tell us, no, no, Mickey's going to come back. Don't worry, Mickey's coming back, I promise. And finally, Mickey comes back. And then things got out of control. There's Mickey, he's coming back, and next to Mickey is a witch. And she's really ugly, and she's doing lightning at Mickey. And then she grows. She's like three times a normal person's height. And my son's kind of like, no, no, it's okay, there's Mickey. And then she does this thing, and it blasts, and smoke comes. And then there's a four-story black dragon breathing fire on Mickey. And he lights the lake on fire. I mean, it's like singeing our eyebrows. So here's a dragon trying to eat Mickey. Yeah, son, watch Mickey, two-year-old. I'm dad of the year, by the way. That's, that's me. At the end of the show, the only thing my son could say, I said, what do you think, son? That was scary. And he has talked about a dragon every day. It's all he remembers about Disneyland. There was a big dragon. Here's the thing. Mickey beat the dragon and the witch and the psychotic Alice in Wonderland dream. All of it. Because at Disney, the good guys always win no matter how bad it gets or how many locked doors there are, how many you can't find keys, how many dragons are firing, they always win. That is our God. He will win. 
redemption will be complete and total and beautiful and wonderful and all of the wickedness and all of the things we struggle with, he's gonna remake all of it. That's what we have to look forward to. Let, let, me, let me read to you. We don't have a whole lot about what eternity's truly going to be. Um, we have a bunch of visions out of uh, Revelation, although I think John may have read Alice too before writing Revelation. Can I say that about the Bible? All right, um, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's going to be on our couch. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain, for the former things will pass away. That is our redemption. That's what we have to look forward to. Whatever this world throws at us, that's our redemption. At the end of Alice, gets awoken by her sister. She realizes the whole thing was a dream. And when I first read that, I thought, man, I wish I could wake up sometimes. I mean, in the midst of the stuff I'm going through, I wish I could wake up and go, okay, it was just a dream. But it's not a dream. However, you will get to wake up. At some point, when he returns, you will get to wake up will get to experience the joy of God being with his people fully redeemed. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son that in all of our messiness, our sin and rebellion, pain and the hurt, you sent him to come right in the middle of all of it, to walk among us, to feel all of that hate and hurt and everything that we struggle with, and to defeat it. Lord, may you give us the courage and the sight to know that he is coming back for us, that this is not all there is, and Lord, to hold on to that that we will be fully redeemed. We ask this in Jesus' name.